This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.9, Political Considerations, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and yet another relic left over from the One Year War. And I'm Nina. Can we stop pretending there's any doubt about Quattro's real identity now, please? No. Mobile Soup Breakdown is made possible by the support of 146 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest patrons, Cody B and Eli B-M. Patrons, depending on level, get a shout-out on the podcast, entry in all of our seasonal giveaways, recognition on our website, access to a patron discord, bonus content, behind-the-scenes exclusives, and physical Mobile Suit Breakdown merch like art prints, pins, and t-shirts. Find out more at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 8, The Dark Side of the Moon, or Tsuki no Uragawa. And we research a very important birthday, coming of age in Japan, answering services, and the history of the answering machine, what's a Lila to a Jared, master and disciple relationships, and McDonald's in Japan. But first... For a refresher on what happened last week, our friends at the Titans News Network. Welcome back to TNN, the Titans News Network. First in news, first in loyalty. We now return to our continuing coverage of The Chase in Space. In a vain effort to elude their righteous Titans pursuers, the AUG extremists have fled into the shoal zone of what was once Side 4, hoping to hide among the wreckage left by Zeon's merciless aggression during the One Year War. No doubt the sight of these ruined colonies is a stirring reminder to our courageous Titans defenders of the horrible atrocities that happened the last time so-called space-noid independence movements were allowed to get out of control. In other news, residents of Side 1 have been reporting hearing what sounds like distant screaming and sobbing. Some people are even claiming that it sounds like someone is screaming the name Lila. Others have suggested that this might be a mass hallucination brought on by media hype and space madness. We asked Titans representative Lieutenant Jared Mesa whether the Titans task force operating in the region was aware of these mystery noises, and he told us, quote, What? How did you? I mean, no, I don't know anything about that. When asked to speculate about the possible origins of such a sound, Lieutenant Mesa told us, It's not important. Shut up. I don't want to talk about it. I guess next time we should send a better interviewer. You said it, Nina. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. And remember, buying products advertised on TNN is the best way for everyday Earthnoids like yourself to support our noble Titans protectors. And now the recap for The Dark Side of the Moon.
Leave me alone, Camille yells, laying on his bed. Emma, on the other side of the door, calls out for him to stop sulking. But when Camille opens the door, he is surprised to see Lieutenant Quattro there, too. If you have something on your mind, you can talk to us, he says. But Camille grimaces and insists that he can't possibly. Emma asks Quattro to leave and tries to talk to Camille on her own, thinking he might have some difficult-to-discuss feelings in the aftermath of his fight with Lila. But he thinks she and Quattro only care about whether he's manifesting new-type powers. When he leaves for the hangar, Emma follows him, telling him the story of the time she met Amuro Ray. He seemed gloomy and tired, tormented by not being able to return to outer space, but still dreaming of the future. She hadn't known it was him at the time. It wasn't until she came to outer space and met Lieutenant Quattro that she realized the young man she met those years ago was Amuro Ray. Now that she is on the Argama, Emma thinks that it's this atmosphere that Amuro wanted, Camille asks her if she thinks there is someone like Char aboard the ship as well, and she says probably. Then you've met Char already, Camille says as he swings out of the cockpit. A shocked Emma jumps up. What did you say? I said you want to meet Char, don't you? No, you said I had already met Char. Camille insists those weren't his words, but before they can argue anymore, the ship shudders, alarms sound, and they are ordered to battle stations. The Alexandria has continued its pursuit. Jared is only supposed to be testing some new controls on a Galbaldi, but when they catch the Argama, he joins the other mobile suits, scouting for the Argama's destination. Beckoner orders Camille and Quattro to launch mobile suits and sets the Argama's course to make it look as though they are headed to Granada when they will actually change course for Amman at the last second. On seeing the Mark II, Jared chases it down. Grabbing hold, he demands, Are you the one who shot Lila down? You didn't know her, but she was my teacher. I will destroy you myself. Angrily, Camille responds, Do you think you're the only one who's lost someone? Will this make her happy or bring her back? They break apart and chase each other across the dusty surface of the moon, getting farther and farther from their ships and the other mobile suits. The two seem evenly matched, neither able to land a shot on the other and both running low on power. Jared is finally able to knock Camille down and raises his beam saber overhead for the finishing blow, but Camille raises his beam rifle just in time to deflect it. Charging past each other, they strike, though neither hit is fatal. Each turns around to re-engage, and Jared raises his beam saber once again. Camille can't move. The Mark II has suffered too much damage, and he's stuck, waiting for the blade to fall, when Quattro arrives just in time to drive Jared off. The Argama arrives safely in Amman, and Quattro, in civilian clothes, returns to his apartment there. He takes a moment to look at a photo on his desk of a young Kasval in Artesia when he is interrupted by a knock on the door and a man named Kinan who calls him Captain Shar Asnabol. Kinan seems to be an intelligence officer. He has news from Granada and something called Anaheim and shows Shar a photograph of the asteroid belt in which they've identified a nuclear pulse. It seems the Axis, whoever they are, have begun their journey to Earth and Zeon's ghost is making its move. Someone named Haman Karn has turned 20, and Grips has started moving. They are interrupted when Shah receives a message from a Mr. Wong Lee, arranging a meeting for the next day at a burger restaurant called McDaniel. In the morning, Camille and Emma set off for a drive on the surface. The ruins of a former colony litter the area with mountains of jagged debris. As they drive, they talk, and Emma tells Camille that she understands now why the Titans were formed that they used the idea of Xeon and its remnants to their own benefit. 
Nearby, a small group of titans led by Kakrikon operate a reconnaissance post. While looking for signs of the Argama and Ayug, they spot Camille and Emma and take off after them. Back in Amman, Quattro visits McDaniel. Beckoner stands behind the counter and points Quattro toward a back room. A group of men in business suits sit around a table, the room's air hazy with smoke. Mr. Wongli explains that he heard Quattro opposed the current Ayug plan to attack Jaburo, and he would like to hear why. Quattro explains that they are not strong enough, that such an attack would cause ecological damage on Earth, and that it would trap Ayug soldiers on the planet with no way to get out of the gravity well and back into space. But Wang Li, who seems to be speaking for the group of backers assembled here, thinks they must strike at the headquarters if they truly want to disrupt the Federation forces. Such a strike would be both publicly popular and make the Federation take them seriously. You're asking the impossible, Quattro tells them as he leaves the meeting. Kakrakon and his group, using jetpacks, follow Emma and Camille, and once in range, they open fire. Camille shoves Emma from their vehicle, out of the line of fire, before grabbing his own gun. The firefight continues among the rubble, and in an incredible stroke of luck, something is shaken loose and falls just in time to block Camille being shot. It's Haro! Camille picks up the green orb, taking it with him as he goes to retrieve Emma, and they flee back to Amman. We don't see Camille make much progress as a character in this episode. I think he feels stalled. Hmm. You know, he ends the last episode talking about how he wants to continue as he is. And what he means is he wants to be permitted to use the Mark II when he feels like it, but does not want to be a soldier, does not want to be subject to military discipline, does not want to be part of the crew. Wants to be a kid, but a kid who's not subject to any discipline. As we talked about last time, he's in this place where he wants the freedom of an adult, but not the responsibilities. (laughs) And as such, he's perched in this place trying to maintain both of those things. And he's still there, I think, by the end of this episode. That's where he begins and ends it. I can agree with you that that is where the episode begins, though I think it gives us a little bit more nuance to Camille's position here, because it's not exactly where he ended the last episode, where he was like happy that they were all congratulating him, but didn't quite want to be a soldier. We actually get Camille sulking in his bunk, and he's been sulking so long that Emma and Quattro felt the need to come and try to get him out of that funk. Oh, see, I I thought in that last episode he was pleased right up until they were like, welcome to the crew. And he was like, I didn't say that. (laughs) And I thought he seemed quite angry that they had made that assumption. I didn't catch any anger there, just a sort of like an emotion for which I have no name. It's definitely a flavor of sadness because I think he knows that the position that he's in can't last. (laughs) Melancholy. That's the word I wanted. It looked like he was feeling melancholy about it. He is so petulant when they come to check on him. He has good reason to be. Imagine the scenario for a second. You've just killed someone for the first time. You're sulking in your bunk, dealing with your emotions that you, as a 17-year-old kid, have no idea how to deal with. Let's agree, Camille has no idea how to handle his own emotions. So Camille is sulking in his bunk, which is probably the healthiest we've seen him in dealing with his emotions so far. He's not beating anybody up. He's not stealing the Mark II. He's not flirting with everyone. So he just wants to be left alone. Somebody comes to see him, and he tells them to go away. It turns out it's Emma. Okay, he likes Emma. He wants to be friends with Emma. Does he? Seems like it. Mm, 
He should alter his behavior if he wants to be <laughs> friends with Emma. Well, maybe this is the beginning of that. He goes to let Emma in. Maybe he's willing to talk with Emma about his feelings. She's around his, well, she's not really around his age, but she's closer to his age than most of the other people. Mm -hmm. Since the last time we talked about Emma, I looked up her age. She's 24. Okay. So he goes to talk to Emma. He opens the door. Deception. It's Emma and Quattro. Well, to be fair, she gets rid of Quattro once she sees that he is an impediment to her conversation with Camille, that he's making it worse. Oh, yeah. But whether she did this knowingly or not, Quattro used her to get Camille to open the door because Quattro knew that there was no way Camille would open the door for him. Now that she's a member of the crew, does she have a choice? If Quattro orders her, hey, we're going to go check on Camille. That doesn't seem like the sort of thing that you should be able to order someone to do. That feels outside the purview. I mean, it does. But remember that Emma's been in the military a while. She might also perceive even just a suggestion or a request from a superior officer as like, oh. I'm not saying Emma's a bad person for consenting to help Quattro in this deception, but she did. She also gets rid of him. Yes. And Camille, feeling betrayed, doesn't want to talk to her. And then... She says some things to him that he feels like aren't really her words. It's like, use your own words. And then what she says after that is literally something that Quattro said a minute ago. So so I didn't get that vibe. When he told her to use her own words, she expressed that it was a very intense combat and that he might be feeling some things that he doesn't know how to express. She is a more experienced soldier talking to a less experienced combatant. True. It's a reasonable thing for her to say, but it's also something Quattro said before they ditched him. I don't think that disqualifies it, though. I don't think those are still Quattro's words in her mouth. I think that's her actual sentiment. No, but I can understand why Camille would feel that way. And there's something really interesting here. Emma and Quattro are using very similar words to ask two different questions. And I think Camille thinks it's the same question. And he responds to Emma as though he were responding to Quattro's question. Right. So that's the thing... <laughs> When I watched the episode, I was more bemused by this than irritated. But now that we're arguing about it, I'm irritated. <laughs> Emma at no point makes this about new typeness. Mm -hmm. Never, ever. That's not what she asks. That's not what she says. At no point does she give any indication that she gives a bleep. <laughs> Thank you for making my editing easier. Whether or not Camille had any new type experiences out there. She is checking on someone who just went through something emotionally intense that she has some experience with to see if they would like to talk. Camille is the one who makes it about new type stuff. Camille is, and not without basis, Camille has developed this chip on his shoulder about they only want me because they think I'm a new type. Like, oh no, they only want you because you're a supernaturally good soldier. How dare they? And this is a far cry from his like fanboy moments about how, oh, the entire crew of the white base must have been new types. And Fa was like, are you sure? I don't think that's... And he's like, yes. And he just like <laughs> takes off and is so excited to think that Bright is a new type. And, you know, so what happened? First of all, why must a new type be a super soldier? They don't have to be, but he is. He doesn't want to be. They're trying to make him. Uh, he keeps getting in the mobile suit and fighting exceptionally well. He tries really hard not to kill people when he's fighting. Uh, great, but fundamentally irrelevant. <laughs> Disagree. <laughs> what would you say about a pacifist picking up a gun and pointing it at someone? I don't think Camille's a pacifist. I don't think Camille knows what he is. Well, now we agree. <laughs> 
But in this conversation, I totally get why Camille would think that Emma was asking him about new type stuff. First of all, everybody's been asking him about new type stuff. And second, when Emma and Quattro show up and Quattro asks whether Camille had any feelings during his encounter with Lila, what do you think the chances are that Quattro was not asking about new type stuff? Oh, I mean, Quattro has been mishandling this situation, this relationship from the beginning. No question. Maybe because Camille is a boy and he has no idea how to manipulate people if he can't (laughs) use romance (laughs) upon them. That's a legitimate opinion. That's not even just a joke. That would explain how Char was able to manipulate Garma. We're both nodding at each other (laughs) with with an eyebrow raised. The thing that I don't think is appropriate in Emma's behavior is that when Camille leaves, she doesn't just let him go. She follows him. She grabs hold of his shoulder because he's holding the little rail that's pulling him down the hall. And she insists on continuing this conversation even when he is clearly done. Right. And now she brings up Amaro. Because if she wasn't talking about new type stuff before, she is now. But it feels different. I thought a lot about her recounting this story about Amaro. It's a weird moment. It's a weird moment. It doesn't entirely fit. I found myself wondering why is she saying all this? Why have her have this experience of having met Amuro? What purpose does that serve in the story? But I think it fits a little bit into the pattern of her behavior in this episode because fundamentally she is trying to win Camille over to the idea of being a soldier, I think. And when she talks about Amaro sort of languishing on earth, living off of his parents' money and sort of melancholy, she attributes that to the fact that he's not out in space and that he can't be for some reason that he can't come back out into space. And not just that he's not out in space, but that he's longing for something like the Argama, something like the, she uses the word kooky, which is literally air, but is like- It can mean atmosphere. The vibe. Yeah. He's missing the vibe of the Argama. The camaraderie, the community. We get an impression of him in isolation now. And I think she is trying to convey to Camille, not that he is Amaro come again, but that he might also miss those things if he didn't have them. The situation he finds himself inexorably moving towards is not purely negative, (laughs) that it has positives and that the alternative is sad. Hmm. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. Camille would feel tormented if he couldn't pilot the Mark II. Then we get a couple of extra points. For some reason, meeting Quattro made her realize that the young man she had met before was Amaro. And then Camille asks her if she thinks there is someone like Char on the Argama. And she says she thinks so. Uh, And he says, then you've already met Char. And he claims that that's not what he said. (laughs) Emma's reaction is shock. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of their back and forth about this, the camera cuts to Quattro. Looking rather put out. Well, looking blank. He's got his sunglasses on. His mouth doesn't move. He's been listening to their whole conversation. There's a weird amount of surveillance going on on the Argama. Oh, this is from earlier. But... (laughs) Part of Camille's petulance is his whole, I'm afraid you can't come in, Emma, because there's no surveillance in here. Just like, sorry to burst your bubble. I'm a full soldier now and can go where I want. (laughs) Look at all these privileges that come with accepting my role as a soldier. Don't you want all of these privileges? 
Emma and Camille's reactions there make me wonder, did she already know? And she's surprised because she thinks this is an indication that Camille also knows? Or does she not know, but hearing Camille say this makes her realize, like, oh my god, is Char Asimal here? Like, I must demand Camille explain it to me. Or is it a, is it a slip of the tongue, really? I mean, I can't wrap my head around the motivations of either person involved in this conversation. I don't know why Emma reacts the way she does. I don't know why Camille says it in the first place, especially when he then flatly denies it later. And we don't get any visual cues here to tell us what's going on. Yeah, I don't know. Neither do I. We then later, in sort of a continuation of what I described as Emma's attempts to win Camille over, after they land on the moon, the two of them are out in a, like, a buggy and just having a chat and they seem very friendly. See, Camille wants to be friends with Emma. The topic of Ayug and the Titans comes up and we now have Emma saying, oh, you know, these past few days have made me understand why the Titans exist, that they claim to be about getting rid of the remnants of Zeon, but that's just an excuse. They're just using it. You know, after seeing Colony 30, she's really giving the explanation again, but from a perspective of someone who has only recently learned these things. Not from Quattro's perspective of, this is the absolute truth and I know these things. This scene with Camille and Emma on the moon investigating the ruins of this destroyed colony is really interesting especially in context with the previous episode, because this is the second time Camille and Emma have gone to explore the destroyed ruins of what used to be home for somebody. And in the previous episode, Camille and Emma were guided through it by Quattro, who sort of told them what to think. Here's what happened here. Here's who's responsible. Here's what you should think about it. Here they make the journey on their own, unguided. Meanwhile, Quattro is visiting a thriving, living, vibrant city. So now for Camille and Emma, who they did live through the one-year war. Camille was 10, Emma was 17, Camille's age. But we don't get the impression that it touched their lives directly in the way that it did for Quattro and for Beckoner and for Blex and all of the older generation. So for them now, they are discovering that aftermath. They're discovering the ruins of all of these things that used to be cities and homes and the recognizable world. And in a way, they, like Zeta, like the audience, are exploring the ruins of what could have been, what was promised. And it's while they're in those ruins that Camille finds Haro. Haro. Are you Genki Haro? Not really, because you've been sitting in these colony ruins for however many years. Does not look in great shape. Poor Haro. Still bulletproof, though. <laughs> I was going to say, Haro comes to the rescue yet again. Yeah. Haro arguably saves Camille's life here by what seems like random chance. Haro's appearance here is a little strange, isn't it? First of all, why is Haro here? Second, what is the point of Haro showing up in Zeta Gundam? I mean, is it just for humor? Like, is he going to be comic relief? Or, I mean, what's the deal? He really stands out. And it kind of feels like this entire trip to the colony ruins, from a larger narrative sense, the only point of that is for Camille to get Haro. Yeah. 
Haro was clearly a beloved character in the first series, and so they wanted to include him. And they could have just made some new robot, but Haro is so iconic. Why try to strike gold twice when you can just <laughs> have the same robot? Mm-hmm. It's also one more similarity, right? It's one more tie. It's one more thing that makes Camille like Amuro. Exactly. That's my theory on this. Since Zeta Gundam started, Camille has been acquiring these talismans, these amulets of Amaronis. The first one is the Gundam Mark II. Then there's the Argama. Then the Gundam Mark II gets repainted to look like the Gundam. Now Haro. And all of this while the people around him are looking at him and saying, you could be the next Amaro Ray. We need an Amaro. But Haro is an especially interesting part of the legacy of Amaro because Haro predates the One Year War and Haro was a creation of Amaro's during better times, happier, more peaceful times, but also before Amaro had awakened to his potential for good or for ill. And Haro is also something that bound Amaro to Fra, to the orphans. Haro was for Amuro almost like a familiar tied directly to the human part of his soul as opposed to the super soldier psychic warrior part. The robot he created is the human part of his soul? Yes, that's so beautiful. <laughs> the better part of this episode is actually taken up by the other fight that Camille is in, his first lunar duel with Jared. There were two things that really struck me about this fight, at the very beginning and at the very end. At the very beginning, Camille's launching and the ship is firing. And he's like, ugh, why are they shooting while I'm launching? Quattro, who launches right after, is like, oh, thanks for the cover fire, guys. <laughs> Camille does not understand anything about his job. <laughs> uh, it's not his job yet. He has refused it. This is an unpaid internship. It doesn't count as a job. They're not teaching him anything. And then when they get back, Quattro points out, your inexperience is showing. The word he uses for inexperience is a homophone with the word for young. Wakai can mean young, but it can also mean like green. Green as in immature, inexperienced. Right. Not midori or <laughs> Yes, ao. correct. And he says wakasugita, like too inexperienced. Because Camille allowed himself to get drawn away from the ship, drawn away from Quattro by a single mobile suit. And Camille looks angry and says, I won't die. Like, after Quattro's <laughs> like, if you're not careful, you could get yourself killed. I won't die. And while Amuro did not always do this very effectively, Amuro at least was interested in being better so that he would survive. Camille seems to think it's enough to be determined about it, <laughs> that if he just asserts that he won't die, that's all he really needs. Again, I don't think he knows what he wants out of this situation, but if you're gonna keep getting in the war machine and battling other war machines, and that is an experience that you would like to survive, maybe learn some stuff. I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think you overread Camille's reaction here. I don't think he's saying, I am determined not to die. And on the strength of that alone, I will not die. I refuse to learn anything new or improve in any way. My shonen determination is enough. You, you don't think he's being defensive? I think he's being defensive. I think he's mostly just saying, I'm not going to die. 
He just has the, like, young person invincibility lie. Yeah. Okay. He's also, unlike Amuro, never been in really serious danger in a combat yet. Even with Lila. I mean, Lila was very strong. He was pushed to his limits. He struggled as hard as he could. But there was no point there when it looked like Lila was going to be able to kill Camille. In the combat that just happened, Quattro had to save him. That's true. <laughs> That's pretty close. That's about the closest Camille has come to being in real danger. Whereas Amuro was nearly killed in basically all of his fights for the first five or six episodes. Amuro was also not powered by anger in the same way that Camille is, and anger can make a person feel invincible. The thing that struck me in this combat, more so than either of those things, is when Camille is fighting Jared and he says, stop making me kill people unnecessarily. And later when they're in the ruins of the colony and the jetpack titans are flying around shooting at him, he tries really hard not to shoot back, even to the point of throwing space debris at them. This is kind of roundabout, but it, it'll work, trust me, when I get there. There's a series of fantasy books that I loved as a teenager by author Robert Asprin. And there's one in which a couple of mafia enforcer types enlist in an army for the purposes of undermining that army later. And they're going through basic training, and they're already highly skilled at fighting. And when they're doing their targeting drills, they always hit the dummy in the leg or the arm or wherever, but they tend to land their shots in like the thigh mm -hmm. or the shoulder. And they're getting yelled at by their commanding officer, by the person in charge of the training, like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, you can't talk to him or he can't pay you if he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually the two of them get pulled aside later. He says, look, you're clearly very good and can place a shot wherever you want. And that's great. But these kids that we're training up from nothing, it's going to take them a lot longer to learn to do that than to learn to just hit center mass. And trying to do what you're doing will get them killed. And Camille, trying to dance around it, going into a war where people are trying to kill him and he's trying not to kill them, is going to get him or someone else killed. But this isn't a war. You don't think so? Not yet. As much as Basque made a big deal of saying, this is war, at one point when his fleet was engaged with the Argama, this is a police action. This isn't a war. This is the Titans sending a couple of ships to chase down a couple of rogue ships. This is a high-speed pursuit. <laughs> yeah, this is a space car chase. But does Camille see it that way? Because he is the one who left saying how much he hated the Titans and was glad of a chance to fight them. In this fight with Jared, they're both talking about Lila, and Camille says, what good is killing me going to do? Is it going to make her happy? Is it going to bring her back to life? Camille is asking, what is the point of all of this? He'll protect the Argama. But why does protecting the Argama necessarily mean killing people? And maybe that's a big part of why he is so reluctant to become a soldier. Because then the point of all of it and his aims and his goals, they have to change. Like you said in your story, when you're a fighter, you can fight. But when you're a soldier, you have to kill. Another story. I had a karate instructor once who said something to us as advice, and we were in junior high. I don't think we really understood, or we thought it was funny the way he phrased it. I understand much better now as an adult. He said, first you run. If you can't run, if they won't let you run, you fight like you have to kill them. Anybody who won't let you get away, you have to assume is trying to kill you. Because if you don't fight like that, you might not make it. 
If Camille's karate coach ever told him that, I don't think he was listening. And I've said it before, I think Camille's being deeply naive. He ran away with the rebel army. What did he think he was getting into? Maybe he thought he was going to print up some flyers. Then he should have found some underground journalists and not the people who showed up in mobile suits. And he was perfectly happy to terrorize that military police officer. Yeah, but he tried really hard not to kill him. We don't know that. (laughs) I would say that in a scenario where you have a mobile suit and you are shooting your guns and stomping at and around a squishy human person, you have to be trying hard to not kill them. He threatens to kill the pilot of the other Mark II. I don't know if he would have done it. All right. Our basic positions here are I think Camille is entirely unreasonable and Tom thinks Camille is mostly reasonable. <laughs> this is this is the basic problem of all of our discussions about Camille. We can boil it down further than that. You don't like Camille. I like Camille. No, there's Hey, I think there is a difference between not liking someone and thinking that they're unreasonable. Sure. I can like somebody and still find them unreasonable. Yeah, but like two episodes ago, you said you didn't like Camille. Yeah. I'm just saying that's not relevant to my current points about him. I think you're biased against Camille's. There is something deeply old-fashioned about Jared's position in this episode. He's getting a vengeance for his dead teacher. He challenges Camille to single combat, very specifically. Camille kind of can't believe it when Jared does this. Because Jared's like, I'm going to beat you in hand-to-hand combat. And Camille's like, in a mobile suit? I felt so bad for him, actually. He kind of loses it after Camille gets away. It's like, I can't even get vengeance right. And he's crying and he pounds on his control panel. He does something that so far in the show, only Jared and Camille have done. And they do it repeatedly. When they are overcome by their emotions, they grab the control panel and they kind of lean into it in a way that hides their faces. It's a very distinctive action. It's very significant. And it's only the two of them who do it. He's also using a Galbaldi. It's the equivalent of using his teacher's sword. Right. Using his teacher's weapon to try to get the revenge. And I think that's the thing that gets him thrown in the brig. I think he wasn't supposed to take the Galbaldi. He like talked some people into letting him do it, but he absolutely was not supposed to. Yeah, I think he he lied to the technicians. Oh no, I've been cleared to take it out just on a test run. He also might have been forgiven if he'd been more successful. Probably. Because once he was out in it, Jamaican is like, go after that ship. But then after that, Jamaican's like, wait, was he in a Galbaldi? And then this harkens back to Tom's earlier research about sort of codified rules around vengeance. Kakrakon asks Jared, do I need your permission to avenge Lila? If you remember my research from, I believe, episode 1.11, All That Remains, about kataki or kataki uchi, which is the term for this official revenge, Only certain people with certain relationships to the deceased were allowed to seek authorized revenge. And they wouldn't allow multiple people to be pursuing revenge on the same person at the same time. So if Jared had precedence, basically, if he had a relationship to Lila that would give him the first right of seeking revenge, then Kakrakon can't. Kakrakon has to back off. It feels very old school of Kakrakon to ask that. I don't know if this is how the rules worked, but I think he's asking, were you lovers? That's the only one of the relationships that justifies Kataki that I think would apply here. Because while Lila was a superior officer, she was in a different unit. Jared was not one of her subordinates. Mm-hmm. 
and he wasn't her child or younger sibling. Or his teacher in an official capacity. That wasn't one of the ones that I remember coming up, mm -hmm. but it is the sort of relationship that would fit. Mm -hmm. It is one of those like Confucian binary relationships. Right. Within the larger narrative of Zeta Gundam, this episode plays a very important structural role because the first arc of the show has now come to an end. The first arc starts with stealing the Gundam and then the getaway, the high-speed space chase from Green Oasis, Green Noah 1 and 2, Grips, however you want to name those colonies, to Safe Harbor here on the moon in the city of Amman. So that arc has concluded, and while it wouldn't be very satisfying, you could, in theory, have ended the show there. The characters we know and care about have achieved what was their goal, and so now we need to have something that allows us to transition into the next arc of the show. This is the point where we go from a smaller story to a bigger one. The sort of funnel of information has to open up, and the world has to get larger. And this episode does a lot to set up what's coming next. Most of that is done by Quattro and what he's doing during the course of this episode. We also learn a lot about the behind the scenes of Ayug, of how it operates, of their intelligence sources, who is pulling the strings, who is running the show. One of the very early things you noticed about Ayug was that they had somehow built the Argama in secret and that it was like no other battleship out there. So that gave us a sense that Ayug was bigger than just the crew of the Argama and Montblanc. Well, and that somebody, or more likely a large group of somebodies with the deep pockets and a lot of access to resources, is backing them. And this episode tells us some more about that, but it also shows us some of their limitations. They are not a territorial entity. They don't hold land. There is nowhere that is really Ayuks. There's no totally safe place for them. Although, here in Amman, Camille notes there's another new ship docked there. Mm-hmm. Jamaican has a little aside because they're getting resupplied at Granada and Granada's not able to give them very much supply. Jamaican interprets this as a deliberate falsehood that they have resources, but they're giving them excuses because they are in fact Ayug sympathizers. Mm -hmm. Hard to know if that's paranoia or <laughs> actually they are Ayug sympathizers. Yeah, hard to know. But when Quattro goes to meet with the Ayuk backers, maybe even the Ayuk leadership, it's not entirely clear who all of these people are. He has to do it in the smoky back room of a McDaniels restaurant. Yep. So they are absolutely an underground organization. They're just an underground organization with enough heft and enough allies in the right places that they can do some pretty impressive things. We get what I'm going to call final and total confirmation that Quattro is Char. I think it's ambiguous and uncertain. He has a photo of Casval and Sela as children. He has a photo of two blonde kids. I think we need to have your memory checked. That looks like child Quattro and child Lila to me. And then the, I'm going to say, intelligence officer who comes to meet with him because he has a packet of information and a lot of charts and maps and mm -hmm. whatnot, calls him Char. And when Quattro corrects him, is like, well, you'll always be Char Asnable to me. <laughs> what a weird case of mistaken identity. <laughs> Here's a question about that guy. Do you think he works for Ayug or do you think he works for Quattro? 
Quattro seems like the sort of person who, where possible, he wants people to work for him. Also, no one else is at this meeting. This felt like Quattro checking in with Quattro's ex-Zeon intelligence agency friends. The guy's name is, I think, Kynan or Keenan. I'm just going to call him Turtleneck. What about Char's outfit, huh? It's like a Mandarin collar shirt and um, like an opera scarf and a very cool overcoat. Mm -hmm. And he leaves his sunglasses on. Yep. It looks like a very nice little apartment. Whatever the city is, it looks lovely. He enters through a beautiful park. When he's on his way to McDaniel, he walks through a mall. It looks very prosperous and trendy. The outfits of everybody around are very 80s, very like bright neon pastels. Lots of off-the-shoulder tops for women and leggings. Yeah, big hair. Are you talking about Quattro's big hair? No, I was talking about there's a specific young woman in like off-the-shoulder top and leggings and big curly hair when he walks in. <laughs> Um, yeah, we learn a lot during that intelligence meeting. Although Char opens with the utterly ambiguous, will it work? And the response is, Anaheim is counting on it. So some weapon or plan? Shrug, question mark. Yep, all to be revealed in the fullness of time. Maybe. Then Turtleneck pulls out a chart with a spot marked on it that he says is the site of a nuclear pulse. Yeah, it's a photo of the asteroid belt where they've identified this one little flare. Which first I thought was maybe some kind of weapon being used or tested. But then Quattro says, Zeon's ghost has made its move. And Turtleneck says they are headed to Earth. And so I think nuclear pulse has got to be some kind of propulsion system. Tom can either confirm or deny. I'm making an educated guess. <laughs> Well, and here they mention that Axis has made its move. In case the World War II parallels and the Zeon Zabi thing and Girin comparing himself to Hitler wasn't enough, they're <laughs> called Axis now. <laughs> they are Zeon's ghost and they are called Axis. And this is really interesting to me. Because up until now, we've had the feeling that the Xeon remnants are these like little groups, mostly unconnected, maybe affiliated with Ayug a little bit, but mostly not, that are being hunted down by the Titans. There's no sense from the Titans that what they are actually doing is getting ready to deal with Axis, getting ready to deal with Xeon's ghost. And so perhaps they don't know. Or if they do know, they just aren't expecting Axis to ever make a move. And so when Shar says Zeon's ghost is coming, we get the feeling that it's going to be of a scale totally different from what we've seen so far. We also learn the name of a new significant personage, Haman Karn. Who has just turned 20. Happy birthday, Haman Karn. Which means it's not a pseudonym for Minerva Zabi. Right. The ages don't work out. Yeah. Minerva can't be more than like 10. No, less than that, because she was a babe in arms. Right, so she's seven or eight. And Grips is moving. We are entirely unsure whether this is meant literally or figuratively. The Japanese word, like the English word moving, could mean taking action, changing, stirring, or it could mean literally physically being moved to a different place. So much future tech, and yet he does not have an answering machine. He has to hire an answering service. 
to take his messages and give them to him. They have video phones, but they do not have answering machines. This is one of the things I love about science fiction. There are so many things they predict that are spot on, and then so many things they completely fail to predict (laughs) that are now totally normal and mainstream. Going back to that meeting. In the smoky back room of yes, McDaniels. Where Beckoner has a job. I'm hoping just as a cover for them to use the space, <laughs> not because he needs the money. <laughs> Poor Beckoner. <laughs> I mean, who knows? They probably don't pay well. If they pay at all. We get some more internal conflict within AUG. We've got a whole group sitting around this round table, but the only one who speaks during the whole meeting, and so I assume their leader, Wang Li, shows a certain amount of openness to discussing things. Their proposed plan is to attack Jaburo directly. He has heard that Quattro thinks this is a bad idea and would like to hear why. First, all of the people who are already there when Quattro and Beckner arrive are wearing business suits. They're dressed like civilian businessmen or government officials. Whereas everybody we saw in the Argama was either wearing like casual civilian clothes, or Federation uniforms. A lot of the rank and file are wearing Fede uniforms. Well, as you pointed out, this is still an underground thing. They can't create an AUG uniform and wear it out and about. Sure, but if this is AUG's leadership, if this is like a meeting of AUG's shadow cabinet, they all look like civilian business leaders, not military, any of them. That's true, and that's definitely the vibe that I get. Even if they were military, though, I feel like they couldn't display that unless they were on an AUG ship. That's just sort of your one safe place, right? I'm thinking that if they were Federation officers, Mm. still in the ranks. Though it would draw perhaps undue attention to have like, oh, what are you particular group of officers doing here all together at the same time? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think any of them are officers. I think they're all businessmen, community leaders, maybe some politicians, unclear. Which, of course, begs the question, you know, who funds things, who runs things, and why? Well, I think the answers to questions one and two are the same, and the why is because money. Because in this meeting, it's clearly Wong Lee who's calling the shots. Right, but I I just mean, is it pure profit motive for Mm. them? Are they tired of paying excess taxes and tariffs to the Earth Federation? And they're tired of Earth Federation control of their economy? Or does he also have other interests? Not that that's not enough of a reason. That's been the reason behind quite a lot of rebellions. Yeah. Including ours. (laughs) (laughs) In addition to those financial motivations, hard to tell, but some of these guys could have sort of a broader, more sort of philosophical level reason for wanting to support AUG against the Federation. And those don't have to be independent. They intersect in a lot of ways. One imagines that like in, say, the American colonies before the American Revolution, there are a lot of prosperous colonial businessmen who find themselves frustrated because their status as colonials means that they don't get all of the privileges that they would get on account of their incredible wealth. That being said, The different perspectives that Quattro and Wong Li have on the Jaburo attack says a lot about this divide in the Ayug leadership between Quattro, who, while he's not the leader, he's not head of the armed forces of Ayug, he does seem to be, he's an important officer, versus Wong Li, who 
is the financier, and for some reason that allows him to basically call the shots here. Because the way this works, in the scene, Wong Lee says, we're going to attack Jaburo, what are your objections? And Quattro says, my objections are three. One, it can't be done. Two, it shouldn't be done. Three, even if we did it, the results would be bad. And Wang Li responds to that by saying, well, but imagine if it could be done. Why, the political benefits would be enormous, and we'd win with one stroke. Therefore, you're going to do it, regardless of your objections. To provide a little more fill on that, Quattro's more specific, his it can't be done is we lack the battle power. And Char should know, I mean, Quattro should know, <laughs> he's done this dance before with a much larger army. His it shouldn't be done is that it will pollute the earth, which I think is an interesting point for a space noid to make, because what do they care about the environmental conditions on earth? And yet it seems that they do. It seems that there is a concern about the environmental situation on earth that despite wanting self-governance, that doesn't mean they want to destroy the Earth in the process. If you pay close attention to the Colony 30 flashbacks to the protests before the atrocities there, some of the Spacenoid protest banners say, basically, all humans should move into space. Earth should be like made into this pristine preserve, and there should be no more Earthnoids. Everyone should live in space. So there is an element of like Earth worship in the Spacenoid ideology. And then his, even if we succeeded, it would have bad results, is that anybody going from space to Earth is going to get stranded. They don't have the ships to accompany them to help them get back out of the gravity well. Whatever they brought in, they have to leave there. I think those are all perfectly good reasons. I don't want to imply that I <laughs> agree with Lee on this. I did find it very interesting that he said that successfully pulling off the attack would lead to greater recognition for AU. And like that part, okay, I buy that. Somebody pulls off a highly successful attack against your military headquarters. Like that's somebody you have to take seriously. But he also says public opinion would be on their side. And I don't know that I buy that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know that I buy that either. I think that's wishful thinking. Maybe the idea is, well, everybody agrees with Ayuk, but no one thinks they can actually pull it off. And so if we could show that we were a serious threat to the Federation hegemony, then people would take us seriously. And in taking us seriously, they would also agree with us. And this is a thing that revolutionary armies often have to do in the early stages of the war. They need some big success. They need a big win. Exactly. Also of relevance, we learn that there is an Earth-based support group. It's not AUG. It's not as if there is a ton of AUG activity on Earth itself. There is a separate group called Karaba that provides their Earth-based support. And Quattro leaves the meeting telling them that what they are asking is impossible, but he's not saying no. <laughs> he's a good soldier. He will do what they tell him, even if he completely disagrees with it. No wonder Camille doesn't want to be one. This week, we research and discuss a very important birthday, coming of age in Japan. Answering services and the history of the answering machine. What's a Lila to a Jared? Master-disciple relationships. And McDonald's in Japan. Shaquatro is not just making small talk in his meeting with intelligence agent Kainan when he asks whether someone named Haman Khan has turned 20 yet. I think I pronounced it 
Keenan and a couple of points? Is it supposed Keenan, to be Kynan? Kynan? I don't know, man. Okay. It's spelled like K-I-G-N-A-N. Kignan. Kignan. Yeah. That guy, Turtleneck. <laughs> That's right. We were just going to call him Turtleneck. So when he asks Turtleneck whether someone named Haman Khan has turned 20 yet, he's not just making small talk. We can tell from the context in the scene that Haman's age must have something to do with all of the other things that are being discussed in that scene. Axis, the ghost of Xeon, and that nuclear pulse that they spotted out in the asteroid belt. Yet, we are left to guess at how they are all connected. And that's just classic Gundam storytelling. But there is one crucial bit of added information that would be so intuitive to a Japanese audience that the writers would never think to spell it out, even if they were the spelling things out kinds of writers, which of course they aren't. And yet a non-Japanese viewer can miss this entirely, and that is the significance of turning 20. 20 has been, since 1876, the age of majority in Japan. It is the age when you can drink, smoke, and gamble. It's also the age when you're treated as an adult by the criminal justice system, and you can freely enter into legally binding contracts, you can own assets, you can get a credit card, you can get a passport, and you can get married. Many of those things can be done at earlier ages if your parents consent, but 20 is the year when you are free of parental restraints and truly responsible for yourself in the eyes of the law. Until 2015, you also had to be 20 in order to vote. And there was a time when you also had to be 20 just to express political opinions on the theory that no person who lacks the right to vote should be allowed to influence political opinion in the country. Today, 20 is also the age when Japanese youths celebrate Seijin no Hi, coming of age day. They get dressed up, attend local ceremonies, and celebrate crossing the threshold into adulthood. Seijin no Hi was created in the immediate aftermath of World War II as a way to inspire young people whose ideas of what the future held for them had just been shattered by the Japanese defeat, the post-war depression, and the overnight evaporation of their empire. I seem to remember that under an old way of keeping track of ages, everyone aged up on the same day. <laughs> you didn't celebrate your individual birthday. There yep. was like a day that everybody got a year older. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so you'd have this weird thing that would happen where according to the rules as it was understood in medieval Japan, you would be one year old when you were born. And then on a particular day, everyone who was alive on that day turned a year older, which meant that if you were born the day before, According to modern counting, you would be two days old. And according to the ancient counting system, you would be two years old. Right, because you're one when you're born. Because in that old system, I think they started counting from your conception. And so they, right. they considered you to be a year old already when you were born. And if you happened to be alive on January 15th, which was the day, you just incremented your age, whatever it was, plus one year. Which is why ages in ancient documents are not reliable, especially for really young kids. So because the traditional day of aging up was January 15th, that was when Seijin no Hi was originally celebrated. But in the year 2000, there was an effort to shift holidays onto nearby Mondays in order to create extended weekends. It was called the Happy Mondays Plan. <laughs> and so Seijin no Hi is now celebrated on the second Monday in January. 
Despite its modern provenance, Seijin no Hi is part of a tradition of coming-of-age celebrations and ceremonies that dates back to at least the 700s CE. Of course, the details have changed a bit over the years. The ancient predecessors were called various things, but the most common terms and the ones I'm going to be using are genpuku for boys and mogi for girls. Unfortunately, one of the limitations in researching any Japanese cultural practice from the pre-modern era is that we just don't have very much information about what life was like outside the imperial court. And the farther back in time you go, and the farther away from the imperial court you look, the less information there is. We have abundant depictions from very early on of a Chinese-inspired coming-of-age ceremony being held for imperial children and the children of important ministers. We know that the warrior families celebrated a modified version of the ceremony, and that in later years, around 1400, a version of the ceremony was adopted by farmers, artisans, and merchants. Did common folk celebrate their children's coming of age prior to 1400? Almost certainly. What did that look like? No idea. And as far as I can tell, no one else knows either. But for a young aristocrat, the ceremony went something like this. At some point between 7 and 15, your parents would decide that it was time for you to undergo genpuku or mogi and become an adult. The considerations for them were many. They needed to pick an auspicious day. They needed to secure for you an important sponsor. They had to have the means to pay for the ceremony. And of course, the kid actually needed to be ready to become an adult, because once this happened, all of the responsibilities, duties, and privileges of adulthood were available to the kid. Assuming all of that could be arranged, you would travel to the home of a dignitary for the ceremony itself. There, if you were becoming a man, your sponsor and an assistant would first cut your hair and style it in the adult fashion, before presenting you with an adult's hat called an eboshi. If you are becoming a woman, your sponsor instead presents you with a pleated skirt called a mo. You would then leave the ceremony momentarily to go to a private room and change out of your childhood robes and into the adult clothing appropriate for your gender. Then you emerge, and feasting ensues. Whether man or woman, coming of age also meant abandoning your childhood makeup, because, yeah, that was a thing, and adopting the customary aesthetic of your gender, which, for women, meant wearing makeup, blackening your teeth, and shaving off your eyebrows. This was also when you would exchange your childhood name for an adult's name. The consequences of this ceremony are many. The transition between childhood and adulthood was pretty abrupt, allowing for little to none of that period we call adolescence. Once you came of age, you were considered ready for all of the duties of court life. You were ready for a rank, and an office, and a job. You were also considered ready for marriage, but you gave up some things too. Children were viewed as being inherently closer to the gods and closer to the spirit world. Kids could serve as mediums or exorcists, but only before they came of age. In warrior households, the ceremony would follow the same lines, but for a boy, your sponsor into adulthood, rather than being some court dignitary with ties to your parents, would be a higher status warrior. In all probability, you, now a newly minted adult, would then become your sponsor's retainer for the rest of your life. Instead of a fancy court hat, you got a helmet. And where aristocrats who came of age would be given ranks and court duties, the sons of warrior houses who came of age were considered ready for the battlefield. Consequently, when the country was unsettled and war was likely, the average age for warrior boys to enter adulthood crept upwards, 
to around 20 years old. Moral of the story, if there is a system, people will game it. So when Shaquatro hears that Axis is stirring and asks if Haman Khan is 20 yet, he's really asking, has Haman become an adult? Is Haman ready to take the battlefield? Shaquatro is telling us that Zeon's ghost was waiting all these years for exactly that. And that's a warning. Haman Khan is someone to watch. When Quattro gets home from his latest mission, he gets a call on his video phone, computer, whatever. And it's from a young woman letting him know that he received a call while he was away, who from, and what the message was. This is called an answering service, and it used to be much more common before answering machines became affordable and widely available. You'd pay a service so that at certain times, your calls would be routed to them, and someone working at the service would answer and take messages. You'd then call the service, or they would call you later, to get your messages. It turns out that these services still exist, but are used mostly for businesses that need or want a real person answering the phone, but don't need a full-time or in-person employee. For instance, some businesses use these services to answer calls that come in overnight, or at other times that the business is closed. This whole setup may be unfamiliar to you, because when most of us think of old systems for leaving messages, we think of answering machines. And at this point, we may even have some listeners who don't remember those. So why doesn't Char have an answering machine? There is some dispute about who exactly invented the answering machine. Now, magnetic recording, which is the technology behind most 20th century answering machines, was invented in 1898. That blows my mind. <laughs> when Nina first told me how old answering machines were, I asked if they used wax cylinders, because I just couldn't imagine that magnetic tape had been invented that long ago. I mean, a few of them did use wax cylinders. I'll get to that. But <laughs> the magnetic recording existed. Uh, some sources claim that the answering machine was invented in 1935 by William Muller or in 1931 by William Shergens, whose machine did use phonographic cylinders. Uh, and Benjamin Thornton patented one in 1930, though he doesn't appear to have developed the physical machine until 1935. In 1934, Clarence Hickman, who was working for Bell Laboratories, created a tape-based answering machine, but AT&T, which owned Bell Labs, kept it under wraps because they thought it would lead to fewer phone calls. Remember, this was a time when you paid per call and per minute, so anything that led to fewer calls meant less money. One source that I found said they thought people would make fewer calls if they knew their call could be recorded. <laughs> this just reminds me of how TV networks tried to suppress the VHS and the VCR because they thought that if people could just record shows, then they'd watch less TV. A commercial answering machine didn't come on the market until 1949, and it cost $200, which, adjusted for inflation, would be like $2,100 today. It was not a commercial success. <laughs> Mind you, there were a handful of commercially successful machines in the 50s and 60s, and it didn't specify this in the source I found, but I suspect that the cost meant they were mostly used in businesses rather than in people's homes. However, I found a great New York Times article about the use of answering machines from 1973. 
At the time, answering machines ranged in price from $139 to $900, depending on the features. Again, adjusting for inflation, that's $780 to $5,000. Imagine spending $5,000 just to not check your messages. Tom's being flip, though, because at the same time, a 24-7 answering service cost $30 to $40 per month which is about $170 to $225 of today's money, plus a telephone company mileage fee based on the distance between customer and service. According to the article, this meant that most answering machines paid for themselves within two years. Purchasers were business people, you know, doctors, therapists, freelancers, photographers, musicians, sex workers, or as the article so cheekily puts it, call girls. <laughs> Uh, but plenty of individuals also bought answering machines without needing them for work, especially single people. Hmm. There was one bit I have to quote about the other benefits of answering machines. Quote, unlike answering services, the answering set will consistently pick up the phone on the first or second ring, will not garble or lose messages, and is never rude or overly personal. <laughs> Think about the lengths we go to now to avoid talking to human people on the phone. Imagine there's someone who hears all your messages and you have to talk to them to retrieve them. They know all your business and maybe they express their thoughts about your messages to you. Maybe they are weird or rude to the person leaving the message. What a nightmare. <laughs> They had two anecdotes about this. One, a guy who called to retrieve his messages and he didn't have any. And the operator responded, I guess you're not popular. <laughs> and one of a woman calling to retrieve her messages and the operator saying, oh, he called again. He sounds much nicer than the other ones about the woman's date. Uh -huh. Also, you should all go to the show notes and read this article because half of it is talking about how intense people got about making their outgoing message fun. The outgoing message had a preset length that you couldn't adjust, so you had to fill 30 to 50 seconds in a way that kept people on the line until the beep. And people got very creative. And not only did you have to make it interesting and fun and 50 seconds long, but you also had to change it on the regular. Yep. Despite the benefits, it was still a lot of money to spend, and it wasn't until the restructuring and breakup of AT&T in 1984 that answering machines became affordable to the general public in the United States. I tried and failed to find Japan-specific information about answering machines. I imagine they were, however, affected somewhat by the U.S. market. Can you imagine Quattro coming up with a clever answering machine message? It would just be awkward and weird. He's really bad at people. Mm. When Jared and Camille are talking during their fight, Jared uses a couple of words that have maybe a little bit more nuance to them than their English translations convey. So let's talk language for a moment. First, he says that Lila had been his teacher, but the word he uses here is shisho. Shisho can be translated as teacher, but it's not a word that you would use to describe a school teacher. Shisho is for someone who instructs you in an art whether that's flower arranging or stand-up comedy or martial arts. So Jared probably means Lila was showing him the way of mobile suit martial arts. But shisho is also used for gurus and other spiritual instructors. So Lila could have been Jared's new type shisho as well, where a teacher has gakusei, students, 
Ashisho has deshi, disciples. So shisho is perhaps better translated as the master part of the master-disciple relationship. For Jared to call Lila his shisho is no small thing, but I think it fits. People being people, every master-disciple relationship is going to be a little different, and different traditions have their own unique practices governing how instruction works. And of course, the pressures of the modern way of life have made master-disciple relationships of this classic kind very rare today. But in the idealized form, the relationship is an intense and life-defining one. The master provides guidance and instruction in the art, while the disciple offers loyalty, humility, and uncompensated service. The disciple lives in the house of the master and observes them at work. The master exercises almost complete control over the disciple's career and many aspects of their life. It is an exclusive relationship. Studying under two masters at once is taboo, and it's a durable relationship. The period of direct study can last for decades. There are unique rites of passage for the disciple, including, in some cases, the granting of a new name, and hence, a new identity. And unless it's severed in some way, the relationship between disciple and master will be lifelong. And naturally, because this is an intense and long-lasting relationship between human people, it should come as no surprise that the relationship between master and disciple could also become sexual or romantic. So that would have been good news for Jared had Lila survived. In case you think this is something very antiquated and unusual, when I studied abroad in Japan, I met someone who was not just a deshi, not just an apprentice, but an uchi deshi, a live-in apprentice with a dance instructor. So I went for like a weekly Japanese dance class, but she lived with her teacher. She taught a bunch of the courses. She took care of things around the house. She was super involved. Uh, and this is still very much a part of a lot of Japanese arts today. It was just funny because we, we definitely thought we were studying with this master dancer, and then all the classes were taught by her apprentice. She would come in occasionally and watch us and make comments, but she didn't teach us with any kind of regularity. Her student taught us, and then she would give us feedback. <laughs> the advantages to being the master in this relationship are many. The other word Jared uses that stuck out to me was ikiuchi, or single combat, as it is translated, at least in the English subtitles. This clearly sticks out to Camille, too, who sounds like he almost can't believe that Jared wants to do ikiuchi in mobile suits. Given Camille's reaction, I first wondered if ikiuchi had connotations like hand-to-hand, -hand or in a fair fight, or with my bare hands, you know, something that just wouldn't really make sense for a giant robot fight. But I was wrong about that. Actually, ikiuchi is way more old-fashioned than any of those. In the mid-1400s, Japan's more or less stable, more or less united feudal system under the Ashikaga clan's military dictatorship dissolved, and the country was racked by a century and a half of civil war before the Tokugawa clan was able to amass enough power and prestige to form their own military dictatorship and stabilize the country. This period was known as the Sengoku Jidai, or the Warring States period, and it saw the completion of Japan's centuries-long transition toward true mass warfare, in which the hereditary warrior aristocrats made up only a small elite corps, overseeing vast numbers of professional foot soldiers augmented by semi-trained peasant levies. For most of us in the West, 
When we think about medieval Japanese warfare, we are imagining it as it was practiced during the Sengoku Jidai. Prior to that, so now we're talking 1200 CE and before, warfare was very different. The hereditary warrior aristocrats were still there, as were large numbers of fighting monks, but mostly the professional soldiers and the peasant levies were not. Units, such as they had, were formed by the members of the different warrior families in a particular region, who had allied themselves together into a local group that can be translated as league or lodge. Lower status warriors would attach themselves to a higher status warrior, going where he went, fighting who he fought. And this wasn't a matter of showing up in camp and looking for a good officer to follow. These relationships were based on lifelong personal bonds, or even generations-old bonds between families. The higher status warriors would attach themselves to even higher status officers, who would be attached to higher status commanders, and so on and so on up until you got to the person at the very top. The monks were organized a little bit differently, but that's not relevant to Ikiuchi, so I'm gonna skip them for today. For the most part, everyone involved in this system is a lifelong warrior aristocrat, trained practically from birth and fully equipped with the best gear available. They've all got horses and armor, and they spend the majority of the battle mounted and firing arrows rather than fighting in close combat. Once a battle starts, each officer is going to charge off with his retinue, looking to win himself some honor. And how do you win honor? There are lots of ways to do it, but the most reliable way, the most common way, is to defeat a high-status enemy in combat and, uh, collect his head as proof. How else are they going to know you're serious? How else are they going to know it was really you who really killed that one guy? <laughs> this, by the way, is part of the reason why ritual suicide is such a thing for these guys, because if you kill yourself instead of being defeated in battle, and if one of your retainers makes off with your head, no one can claim the honor of having killed you. So sometimes when two of these warbands meet during a battle, it would be a full engagement between the two sides, with dozens of men on each side charging around, bowstrings twanging, horses screaming, swords scraping against armor. But if you really wanted that sweet, sweet honor and you had identified for yourself a worthy opponent, it might be better to simply challenge them to single combat. You would announce yourself, your ancestry, and any particularly impressive deeds that you had already accomplished. Then they would announce themselves... And assuming that both of you enthusiastically consented, you would fight to the death while your warbands watched as witnesses. Defeat the leader of the enemy warband, and the whole group of them might scatter. This one-on-one -on -one duel in the middle of the battlefield? This is Ikiuchi. So Jared's challenge to Camille here is very, very old school. It's completely out of place in a modern war. And I think it says a lot about Jared's goals. He doesn't really care about the bigger issues at play in the Ayug versus Titans struggle. It's all personal for him. He just happens to have ended up on the Titans' side. And now he wants to avenge Lila because he thinks it will make him feel better about her death. He wants to accumulate as much personal prestige as he can and become the biggest, baddest Titan. Not because he has a goal for the Titans or because he really believes in what the Titans are doing, but because he has a goal for Jared. They make such a big deal out of McDaniel, the famous burger chain, that I felt like I needed to address McDonald's in Japan. 
So McDonald's Japan was founded by a man named Den Fujita, who was born in 1926 and passed away in 2004. He lost his father and his home during the war, learned English at a very young age, and worked as a translator part-time while in high school, then started an import business while he was in college. So it was always a very enterprising person. After trying McDonald's in 1967, he was very impressed with it. Its popularity and its efficiency, not the food quality or <laughs> anything like that. But he decided to bring it to Japan. Also, if I'm understanding his Japanese biography correctly, he was responsible for bringing Toys R Us and Blockbuster Video to Japan in later years. Let's not valorize the man too much, though. Uh, there is some very evident racism in his bio. His earliest sales pitch for McDonald's in Japan was that Japanese people look the way they do because of all the fish and rice in their diet, and that if Japanese people ate meat and bread, they would get taller, their skin would get lighter, and their hair would lighten. This is essentially a rephrasing of various ideas from the Meiji period, where meat was synonymous with a Western or barbarian diet, and some reformers arguing that Japan needed to adopt a more Western and meat-heavy diet in order to be physically strong enough to compete with Western nations. He also seems to have made some anti-Semitic comments, which I am not going to repeat, but they make use of common Jewish stereotypes. The first McDonald's location opened in Mitsukoshi, which is the oldest and most prestigious department store in Ginza in 1971. Ginza is very fashionable, elegant, and expensive, and is in Tokyo. <laughs> he started it there because he said, if we can make it in Ginza, we can make it anywhere in Japan. And what happens in Ginza, the whole country hears about. Construction was actually completed in only 39 hours to avoid disruption to the store. That's pretty incredible. Uh, the shop was only 50 square feet and only served takeout. You can see some pictures in the show notes. They began doing radio and TV advertising in 1973, and in 1980, they ran an ad campaign with the slogan, Sekai no Kotoba McDonald's, which is literally the world's word, McDonald's, but probably means something closer to the world-renowned McDonald's. Like, McDonald's is part of this common world language. So even in 1980, McDonald's was already very much associated with globalization. McDonald's changed certain things about Japanese food etiquette. For one thing, it was considered more of a snack than a meal, because it's not shareable, like you can't really parcel out bits of a burger, and it does not include rice. And so obviously <laughs> it's not a meal if there's no rice. <laughs> Uh, the meat and bread combination, which is to say sandwiches, <laughs> were not a widely known or widely consumed food product at the time. Remember how I said that the first McDonald's only served takeout? Well, on weekends and holidays, it suddenly became a common sight to see young people walking around Ginza with a burger in their hand. The burger itself, the eating with your hands, and the walking around and eating would have looked strange at the time. And the walking around and eating and eating with your hands would even have been considered rude. I mean, that's still considered rude now. I think it's considered less rude than it used to be. It would have been much more <laughs> rude at the time. But because young, hip people were doing it in a famous and elegant neighborhood, it became trendy. And then with time and accessibility, it became less trendy and more of a normal, widespread part of everyday life. 
This may be why we see so many characters in early Gundam eating sandwiches, especially burgers, while they walk around or while they're working. There's an association between this new behavior and globalization, westernization, and modernity, and it's then sort of extrapolated into the future. McDonald's and other fast food restaurants had a similar effect on drinking soda straight from the bottle, which for a long time was considered rude and was called the rapanomi, drinking like you're blowing a trumpet. <laughs> and contributed to the popularity of ice cream. There had previously been a kind of taboo against cold food and drinks. Some people still have this. I've definitely had friends, like, refuse to drink cold drinks even when it's hot out. <laughs> Plus, not much dairy production in Japan, and a lot of the Japanese population is lactose intolerant. And the way we think of eating an ice cream cone where you just kind of, like, open your mouth and lick or bite at it was considered very rude. What was polite was taking small bites, keeping your mouth as like small as possible, so you never open your mouth very wide, to the point where women would even hold up a hand to like screen their mouth while they were eating, or laughing, or, or anything where your mouth opened like that. And yet, if anime has taught me anything, it's that eating ice cream cones is now totally normal and okay. <laughs> <laughs> will ice cream show up in Gundam? Only time will tell. I was curious how McDonald's fit into the history of Japanese fast food more generally as well. So in Japan, fast food before the introduction of Western-style burger chains could be understood to mean something quite different. Udon might be considered the original fast food. Udon, soba, and ramen were often served at counters with no seating. These aren't places to hang out and have a meal. They are places to have a quick filling snack, to scarf down your noodles as quickly as possible and get on with your day. They also have what are called family restaurants. Not quite fast food, but what we might call fast casual, similar to a Chili's, an Applebee's, a Denny's. Uh, informal and inexpensive, but they do have table seating. They tend to serve a mixture of Japanese and Western foods, but they opened right around the same time as McDonald's. The first family restaurant was Skylark, which opened in 1970 in Tokyo. They also tended to be more suburban and boomed as car ownership increased and suburban commuter communities grew. Many of these chains, if they serve Western-style dishes, have a dish called Hamburg steak, which is like Salisbury steak in the U.S., sort of like a burger patty-shaped meatloaf. The ground beef is mixed with spices, egg, onion, and breadcrumbs, and it's usually served with Japanese curry or a brown sauce and various side dishes. And Japan's first homegrown burger chain and McDonald's competitor was Moss Burger, which opened in 1972. Most of their burgers are served topped with chili. They're amazing. Uh, <laughs> and from the beginning, they set themselves up as being the sort of somewhat more expensive but higher quality version of what McDonald's was doing. This is not really a research piece because it's <laughs> hilariously short, but I had a strong sense of having seen the painting in Char's apartment before. So with the search terms impressionist, girl, and piano, I found it. <laughs> it is Renoir's Woman at the Piano, which incidentally had been exhibited in Tokyo in 1979. Hmm. The real question is, is Char's version a print or is it the real deal? Did he loot a Renoir at some point? <laughs> He probably lifted it off McVeigh. Next time on episode 2.10, Discipline and Punish, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 9 and 
a place famous for its flamingos. So journalist just means spy, right? This is no toy, it is a combat haro. Camille is really impressed by Ayug. I guess the Vatican is still around. The revolution will be crowdfunded. Where is Jared though? And you can get away with anything as long as you have enough money. You know, in Gundam or wherever. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Haro's unexplained appearance and miraculous rescue of Camille in Episode 8 is a major plot hole and it has ruined my enjoyment of Zeta Gundam. The only way it can be fixed now is if Sunrise makes a six-episode prestige OVA series that shows how he ended up on the moon on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. That was not agreeable to me. Great Sion's ghost. <laughs> Great blistering particles. I liked that show so much as a kid. What show? Tintin. Hmm. It's like so problematic. <laughs> I don't think I ever actually saw Tintin as a kid. Did you see it as an adult? I've seen like one episode okay. out of curiosity. Yeah, and they have that, I guess what I think of as a peculiar, peculiar, peculiarly, it's a word I'm never going to say on the podcast if I can avoid it. Peculiarly. Stop that. <laughs> And sulking in his bulk is made bulk. <laughs> keeps, I keep saying bulk. That's like the third time I've said that. <laughs> Do you want me to include the dun dun dun? Maybe. Or I'm a, probably going to. Or a to. sound effect to that effect. <laughs> it also gets harder to list them the longer they get. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So how about just coming of age in Japan? Okay. So a very important birthday, colon, a rope of sand. <laughs> I hope you're recording. No? Uh, actually, I am. I'm just saying, you should respect my... Authority? Artistic <laughs> vision <laughs> and call it what I say it's called. All right, all right, all right. You used the magic words, so artistic tell me again. vision? <laughs> Tell me again what your artistic vision is for this title. McDonald's in Japan. Three words. Tells people exactly what I'm going to talk about. I'm not going to say reining in my impulses is your primary job on the podcast. It absolutely isn't. 
but it's it one is, of my jobs. It is an essential function that you perform. I miss that green orb. Tennis ball, Tom. Tennis ball. <laughs> Don't you want all of these privileges? Privileges are very important. With control of the crisper drawer. A more accessible light switch. Power over pizza toppings. Hang on, dog. Dog break. I think it's the same dog. Yeah, it sounds like the I'm same sure dog. I'm sure it's the same dog.